Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's World War I. A deep trench has been dug on the lawn outside Imperial College in South Kensington, London, just by the Science Museum, if you know where that is. The university's finest minds have spent the morning preparing to use it to test out the latest military technology that they've been developing. A voice rings out, gas, gas, quick, girls! Probably didn't sound exactly like that, but you get the gist. And then out from the trench, wearing a blouse and a long skirt, emerges the great chemist, Martha Whiteley. Hello, welcome to Patented podcast about the history of inventions and technology from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. A very warm welcome to you. Hey, guess what? We've done 100 plus episodes of Patented Now. 80 or so of those have focused on men and only a dozen on women inventors. Is it us? Is it the questions we're asking or is it the telling of history itself? Why are there so many more men in the story of history of invention than women? Today we're going to be mulling this question over with Patricia Farah, who's a historian of science at Cambridge, and she's written loads and loads of fantastic books. The one that I know her from is Science of 4,000 Year History, which is terrific, which I read a few years ago when it came out. It's brilliant. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about another book that Patricia wrote about fantastic group of female scientists working in the era of the suffrage movement and World War One, And these suffrage scientists managed to invent and innovate everything from tear gas to arc lights, despite the overwhelming sexism that surrounded them when they were working. So we talked about them and we talked about the bigger question of the place of women in the history of invention in science. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Patricia. Uh, Lovely to have you on the show. Now, your book, A Lab of One's Own... Science and Suffrage in the First World War, released in 2018 to mark the 100-year anniversary of the moment where women got the vote in Britain in 1918. It's a really wonderful book. And I'm interested, before we delve too deeply into it, is there a reason why you went into the First World War specifically? You're not known as being a 
a First World War military historian as such. I, I'm absolutely not. Though there is a reason. I was in the archive at Newnham College, one of the women's only colleges, and the archivist showed me this absolutely beautiful handmade book that two women had prepared just after the end of the First World War. And it had beautiful black and red lettering and it was hand-bound in a linen cover and it had the names of about six or 700 women from Newnham who'd contributed to the war effort. And they were exactly what I expected. There were lots of women who'd been nurses, who'd worked on committees, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, there was quite a long list of women who were experts in ballistics, who'd been doctors in Serbia, who were carrying out experiments on vitamins, all sorts of really sort of hardcore scientific stuff. And I was taken completely by surprise. So I went off into the university library and I couldn't find any books about them. All I could find was books about men who'd practiced science during the war and books about women who'd taken over men's hard labour, like going down the coal mines and driving ambulances, that sort of thing. And there weren't any books on women who were scientists during the First World War. So that was really what inspired me to write it. It seemed such an interesting topic that I'd just stumbled upon. Patricia, just paint us a picture. In terms of science, as in the doing of science at that time, Obviously, there's examples of women we'll come to in a moment, but were they just not written about or was it slightly frowned upon or what was the politics of gender in terms of doing science then? Like, How did it all work? Well, there were very few opportunities for them to go to university, even if they did manage to get some sort of research position. They were still banished from the sort of normal means of communication. They didn't really count in the department. Even somebody like Rosalind Franklin, who was working in the 1950s, wasn't allowed in the tea room at King's College. She had to take her tea and coffee breaks with all the women who were doing the cleaning and making the lunches. She wasn't allowed in the professional scientists' coffee room. And that was the 1950s? Yes. I mean, so women were just excluded from scientific circles. Mm. So that was one problem. Another problem, obviously, is there were very few university places for them. It was very difficult for them to get a university place. Even if they did, they were discriminated against. They weren't allowed in a lot of the anatomy lessons, for example, if they were studying a biological subject or there was nowhere for them to go. There were no toilets. Mm. Everybody laughed at them. You had to be pretty tough to be a woman in science. I was reading a biography the other day about Vera Rubin, very famous American astronomy. In 1961, she went to Palomar Observatory. She worked there. And there was just one lavatory saying men on the outside. So she took a piece of paper and did a sort of paper cutout figure of a woman (laughs) with a skirt on, stuck it on the door and walked in. I thought that was a brilliant solution, but you have to be pretty thick-skinned to actually do something like that. And when I'm thinking back to those times, I'm thinking of Marie Curie, and there are kind of odd, isolated examples of women doing science. Caroline Herschel. We have to sort of search around and pick out odd names. But Well, I did. A, my first degree was in physics. Mm. I was at Oxford during the 1960s. And there were eight women in a year of over 200 men. And I'd expected that. But what really shook me was after I graduated, I went and got a job in London. And I soon learned that the last thing I should ever say is that I had a degree in physics from Oxford. Because if I was in a nightclub or at a party or something like that, I'd just have an empty space all around me. People just didn't want to talk to me. And it was decades before I ever admitted that I'd been at Oxford and studied physics. I just lied about it and kept it a secret. 
because I knew that otherwise I would be ostracised and I didn't like it. Maybe it's the circles I move in. Yeah. But I kind of think that's the opposite now. I think to say, as a woman, to say, oh, I have, I studied physics at Oxford it's is like... It's pretty cool. That's like badass. It's like the yeah, kind of... Yeah, I'm not being reticent about it now. No, no of course. No, you should it. trade on that because it's like everyone at parties and nightclubs is going to swarm around you and, and ask you... If only, yeah. <laughs> about, about... It's funny, actually. I've been, there's, an, there's a book, I don't know if you know this book, actually. I'm, I'm slightly obsessed. My friend Kat Youngnickel. Do you know no. Kat Youngnickel? No. It's a book called Bikes and Bloomers, and it's about women, kind of in your period, actually, early 20th century, a little bit before, not just about how the bicycle liberated women, and that's, that's an interesting story, but actually the patents that women had in terms of the clothes that allowed them to ride bicycles. It's amazing that creativity, the engineering that went into designing cl- clothes, kind of skirts with pulleys, so you'd pull a string down by your shoulder. Anyway, bikes and bloomers, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I think women were incredibly ingenious and inventive, but at that period, a lot of the things that they devised were for domestic technology, like how to make women's lives easier by inventing vacuum cleaners and dishwashers and washing machines. And there's a sense in which men at that stage really didn't have to encounter those sort of problems. There were either the wives or the servants to take care of all of that. And so I think all those sort of domestic inventions were sort of really overlooked in the men's engineering world. They didn't really count very much. It's funny, but you know, you think about all the amazing physics that was going on at the beginning of the 20th century, all those mm, names yeah. that we know, you know, Einstein and Niels Bohr and, and, and all whoever, the x-rays and, yeah. and all the x-rays. Were women interested in these subjects? Were they thinking about them at least? Or was that kind of the bottom as well? Oh, I think women were very interested in them. And some women did manage to get research positions. But a man had to be quite exceptional to employ a woman in his research team. And I think the ones that did, there were a few exceptions, like Bragg, for example, they were actually very sensible because if a woman at that stage had managed to get to a PhD position, she was obviously very, very clever and very, very determined. And there was an additional advantage that she only earned two thirds of what a man would be paid. So if I were a research director, I would have a team full of bright, intelligent women who were much cheaper. It made sense, but men weren't far-sighted enough or broad-minded enough to recognise that. Patricia, tell us some of the names in your book. There's some wonderful portraits of some amazing women who did wonderful and interesting things. Where should we start? Well, if we're talking in terms of inventions, then the most obvious place to start is Hertha Ayrton, who was a very close friend of Marie Sklodowska-Curie. She even taught maths to her daughter. She was a pioneering suffragist. She went to Girton in Cambridge at the end of the 19th century. And during her life, she filed 26 patents for inventions. She started inventing while she was still at university. And she spent the rest of her life mainly studying electricity. She was very influential, for example, in preventing streetlights from flickering. She was very influential in the film industry. The films used to be called the flicks, and that was because the lights of the projectors kept flickering. I still call it the flicks because I'm very old. Yeah, Hertha Ayrton (laughs) sorted that problem out. Amazing. She's a marvellous woman. The first one she actually patented, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was a device for architects so they could blow up scale drawings and people didn't have photocopiers in those Mm. days. It was a mechanical device and she invented quite a lot of those. But another important thing for female scientists and engineers at that period was having a network of supporters and she had 
two supporters. One was George Eliot, one was the woman Barbara Bodichon. George Eliot, as in George Eliot the writer. George yeah, Eliot. She wrote Middlemarch, Silas Marner. She gave herself a man's name, but she's the greatest female novelist of the 19th century. And in one of her books, Daniel Deronda, there's a young Jewish woman, I think she's called Miriam, but I might have got that wrong. And it's often said that that character is based on Hertha Ayrton, who was herself from a Jewish family. I'm just sort of interested in her sort of serial inventions and where that kind of inspiration came from. Like, do, do we sort of know much about her character? Well, like- she was very determined. She was very enterprising. I mean, another interesting occasion was she married a physics professor who was quite a lot older than her, and he became ill and they went. he had to convalesce in Margate on the coast and she'd never been to the coast before and she was absolutely stunned when she watched the water come in and out over the sand and she saw all the ripples in the sand. So while her husband was recuperating she started carrying out experiments and one of the things she did was set up a sort of mini beach in the boarding house where she was staying. She asked the landlady for a zinc bath and she put it on the floor in the living room and she filled it with water. And then she got all sorts of things like jelly dishes and soap bowls and things like that, all the sort of equipment that was lying around her. And she carried out experiments in her zinc bath. And that became the basis of some very important papers that she presented at the Royal Society. And they're very important papers because she was the first woman who was allowed to give her own paper at the Royal Society. Before that, any woman's paper had to be presented by a man on her behalf. But she was actually allowed into the building to present her own paper. So that's pretty momentous. I'm just trying to picture that scene. For, so, for, so for the first time at the Royal Society, which has been going for X hundred years. Since 1660. There we go. A woman gets up. Goes in the building, gives her talk, and then she won a very distinguished prize for her inventions. She was the first woman to be a fellow of the Institute of Electrical Engineers. And then, a couple of years later, someone nominated her for fellowship of the Royal Society because she presented several papers by then. But they had a really excellent excuse for denying her the fellowship, and that was because she was married. (laughs) So on a sort of legal technicality, they said, we don't accept married women. All the men were married, but not the women. And (laughs) so she never never became a fellow of the Royal Society on those grounds. She must have been, well, she was political as well, wasn't she? I mean, she was very active in the suffragette movement. She was very active suffragette, not just a suffragist. She was a suffragette and she supported when the women had been in a hunger strike She went to rescue them. She brought them home. She brought home Emmeline Pankhurst and looked after her because she was so decimated by not having eaten. So that's Hertha Hertha Ayrton, Ayrton, am I pronouncing? That wasn't her name. She was born Phoebe Marks and Ayrton was her married name. She was renamed Hertha by a friend because that's the name of an earth goddess in a poem by Algernon Swinburne. Nice. She was a very beautiful young woman and she was renamed Hertha. Why have we not heard of her? I mean, she's got this incredible colourful story. Well, I'm telling you now because she's so interesting and so important. There are women. One problem why they're not more visible is that there's far fewer of them than men. Yeah. And the other thing is that people tend not to keep records of them. They're often Professor Ayrton came to the soiree with his wife and then we hear no more about his wife and then after her husband died she lost all her contacts in the Royal Society she didn't have an office, she didn't have a laboratory she wasn't a fellow, she was just working at home and so no official records were being kept of what she was doing so it's 
quite difficult to dig up information. As well as science historically being mainly done by men, the writing of science is obviously always mainly done by men. Freddie, our producer, pointed out that we've done a hundred odd episodes of patented and stories about inventions and innovation. And I think we're sort of eight to one men to women, which is not good. And I'm wondering how we should frame things differently to make that better. Well, one solution would be to put a woman on your research team. But then there are now plenty of books about individual women who made very important discoveries. You just have to look harder to find them. So wander away from the main path, get away from James Watt and George Stevenson and all those sort of people and just search out the women like Caroline Hazlitt and Hertha Ayrton and Martha Whiteley. They're there, they're just harder to find. And there's an example in my own university. There was a female professor of engineering and her research project when she did her PhD was on something so obvious but no man would ever have thought about it that if you're a woman and you're pregnant and you're driving and you have a seatbelt going diagonally across you, it's not very good news for the baby if you're in an accident. So this female engineer developed a different sort of seatbelt that would protect the woman and her baby while she was driving. And once you've thought of it, it's such an obvious omission. But I very much doubt whether a man would have had the idea. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and throughout June on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm marking the 400th anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio. It would be hard to think of Shakespeare without plays like Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Antony and Cleopatra, Macbeth, As You Like It, and A Winter's Tale. But without the first folio, none of these would have survived. This is not a book designed to be carried around. This is a book which establishes itself in the library, in the study, and that physicality tells us something about how the plays are being rebranded, reframed for a new generation. Throughout this month, I'm delving deep into the first folio, how it was produced, who made it, and to what extent it has ensured Shakespeare's enduring legacy. So do join me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Another woman in your book who I think is fascinating and also has a great title is Martha Whiteley because she's known as the woman who made the Germans weep, which is a kind of great moniker. Because she was doing research onto tear gas. I mean, it's a bit of a corny headline. But she was at Imperial College before the war, and the war started, all the men went off, and then they dug an experimental trench in the grounds of Imperial College, right next to the chemistry laboratory. And she went down there. She had a team of seven women. And they did research into explosives. They did research into tear gas and mustard gas. And she had the distinction of having an explosive named after her. It was codenamed DW for Dr. Whiteley. But it's quite difficult to find out more information about what these women were doing because it's all covered by the Official Secrets Act. So you read obituaries that so-and-so got an OBE in tribute to her contributions to the war effort, but then there's a full stop and you don't know exactly what she did and that's probably yeah. impossible ever to find out. But was, I mean, you said she was making something like mustard gas. When we hear about mustard gas in the trenches, which of course is the most horrific stuff, can we sort of attribute to, to her? Which, or... Well, she was inventing things like tear gas, but the first samples of mustard gas that had been used in Germany were brought back to Britain and she tested them. Right. And years later, she went round to girls' schools trying to encourage young women to become scientists. And she explained to them that we had to test all these gases and chemicals that came back from the trenches. And the only way to do it was on ourselves. And she rolled back her sleeve and showed a, a sort of spots and scars on the inside of her elbow and said, this is where I tested the poisons. And I spare the scars to this day. For like three years or something, she was in pain because of this. Yes. She put some of this mustard gas on her elbow. She seemed to think that that would encourage young women to want to become physicists. <laughs> Seems very bizarre to me. <laughs> That's what she did. And I like the fact, didn't she, she dug a trench in Imperial as well in the garden? In, in, well, I don't think she actually physically dug the trench, but um, I'm sure someone else dug but the, the trench. A trench was dug. A trench was dug. Then these women, there was seven of them, would... You know, spent a lot of the war down inside the trench simulating uh, wartime activities. And there were so many women during the war who were doing really, really hard work. A lot of them lost their lives. A lot of them became seriously ill. And they're completely forgotten. They were, a lot of these women were playing just as active and important a role as the men who were out fighting overseas. But it's only the men that we hear about. It's interesting that something you said at the beginning, actually, that when the men went off to the front, women would take the jobs of men and work in heavy industry mm. and do all these kinds of things. But of course, when the men came back again, the women then left. It wasn't this promotion of women as such. It wasn't that the women left. It was that the women were squeezed out. 
and it was seen as being really rather immoral for a woman to hold a job that could be given to a man because the man had the responsibility of looking after the family. And there'd been all these appeals to women to join the WACs and all the other organisations, the Land Army, and as soon as they got back, there was headlines saying things like, it's time for women to stop gadding about in uniforms. They've been having a marvellous time for four years and now they've got to get back home and look after their husbands and children. And there was many allegations during the war when they were posted in army camps that they were just basically prostitutes who were looking to sleep with the men. That was an allegation that was often made. Was there a sense, you, this, this sort of link between interest in the doing of science and going to university and the political suffragette movement, was there a sense that new inventions or scientific discoveries and technological progress would lead to a more enlightened, equal society, do you think? Was that the idea? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the best example of that is a woman called Caroline Hazlitt, who never got a university degree, but she was a suffragette. And the war started and she went and worked as a clerk in an engineering company. And then later she trained as an engineer and she became the secretary of the Women's Engineering Society. And she dedicated her life to inventing electrical products that would improve the life of women, things like sort of vacuum cleaners and dishwashers and things like that. And she went on working until the 50s and she was the only woman on the committee that introduced the square pin electrical sockets that we have now, the plugs and sockets that are much safer because children can't stick their fingers inside and it's all earthed. And she was the only woman on that committee that introduced those. Not very exciting, but... It it is kind of exciting, though, in a way. I mean, I'm interested in the day-to-day stuff, the things that actually matter. This podcast, we do history of inventions, and it's, it's very easy to try and do the big, shiny inventions, but actually it's the little things that actually make the world go around. Absolutely, yes. And a lot of those were invented by women. I, I'm, I bet it was women who invented, I don't know, disposable nappies and all sorts of things like that that revolutionised people's lives, but they're not up in the books with Concord, which are very masculine sort of inventions. Concord was obviously teamwork. There's this myth of the single inventor. I mean, even someone like James Watt, who supposedly watched the kettle boil, uh, he didn't invent steam engines. They'd been invented 100 years earlier. He just introduced the condenser and modified them. So there's very rarely a single inventor with those famous products. This period, you know, it's a really interesting period in science generally, as a whole new branch of physics is appearing at the beginning of the 20th century. Is science as we know it changing? Is this the sort of pivot point where women are now accepted in I science? Think I think mean, if you want to give a date to a sea change, I think that was it. Because for the first time, everybody recognised that women were capable of doing this work. They'd been forced into doing it in a way because the men had all disappeared and the women took over and the women did it absolutely competently. And although they were squeezed out again afterwards and although they didn't have the same opportunities and they didn't have the same salary, I think there must have been a huge shift in perceptions of what women could actually do if you gave them a chance. I think men were probably Mm. pretty scared when they recognised that women could do the work as well as they could themselves. 
there wasn't an overnight move towards giving women equal employment in science. I think it was the beginning of a very strong drive towards something verging on approaching equality, which we have today. There's still a long way to go. Women are still very discriminated against in science and engineering and those fields. I want to ask you about that in your experience and what you think now and the sort of direction of travel. Because, I mean, certainly from where I'm sitting, it's something we've been talking about as long as I can remember about women in science and promoting women in science. Are we there yet? Are we going to be there? I mean, certain branches of science, biology, veterinary science, medicine, we seem to have a kind of almost a parity, but things like physics, less so. And I, and I wonder why. I think a lot of it is sort of hidden prejudice. And that's going to change gradually. But I think there's a lot of senior women now, or people like me, I was brought up by birth, surrounded effectively by propaganda, telling me that as a girl, as a young woman, I was inferior to the men around me. And I think a lot of women have internalised that feeling of inferiority. So for me, one of the most scary research projects is when they carried out two sets of interviews where they had a set of applications and they changed the names on the applications. So one research team thought they were getting men, another research team thought they were getting women applying. And the really scary bit is that on these mock interview panels, the women, as well as the men, gave lower marks to applicants whom they thought were women. And I think that's really frightening. I recognise it in myself because I've worked on it and thought about it. It is very difficult to get over that instinctive feeling, oh, you're a second-class citizen because you're a woman. And that's what I've grown up with my whole life. And it's quite difficult to fight that. And I hope that this generation of girls that are being born now will have right on parents who will inculcate a different attitude towards themselves within these girls so that by the time they grow up to be young women, they'll be confident that they're every bit as good as the men. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly seen a massive change, I think. Oh, yes, there has been a huge change. People seem to be, and again, it's probably my own bias because of things I'm interested in, but people generally seem to be much more interested in science and physics and the way that the world works and the natural world generally, I think. And maybe that's because we've got more media, you know, we've got more avenues for people to explore these types of things. There is, yeah. I mean, there are negatives as well, though. One thing that every woman my age recognises is all this awful separation of shops into pink for girls and blue for boys is far, far worse than when we were bringing up our own children. So that's a very retrograde step, in my opinion. Well, a good place to start is Patricia's book, A Lab of One's Own. It's lovely. And Thank you. your other book, Science, A 4,000-Year History. It's great. I've written two books about Isaac Newton and a book about Erasmus Darwin, books about electricity and botany. Very willing to come back and talk about them as well. Definitely. Patricia Farrow, for all your science needs, uh, basically you don't need to go anywhere else. Just She's got you covered for <laughs> pretty much pretty much everything. Listen, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I've been wanting to have you on for ages because I'm a big fan. So it's been a pleasure. Patricia as ever. Well I've enjoyed it too. Come back and see us soon. I will, I'd like to. Thank you Patricia and thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget if you did then you can go back to the other hundred plus episodes we've done and uh, pick out some episodes that you might find interesting or listen to all of them. And as ever if you've got a suggestion for a topic or an idea or a story you'd like us to cover you can email us at patented at historyhit.com 
course, poke me on social media or wherever. Uh, we love getting your suggestions. We love doing episodes based on your suggestions. So don't be shy and get in touch. And I look forward to your company next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.